like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans 3, Romans 3, 27 through 31 is what we're going to read today. Our focus will be on verses 27 and 28, but all of these verses hang together, so I'm going to read verses 27 through 31. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 27, Paul writes, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, the last couple of weeks we have been arguably in the most important paragraph in the entirety of the Bible. The Reformer said that Romans was the most important book in the Bible and that Romans 3, 21 through 26 was the most important paragraph in the most important uh, book of the Bible. And in that paragraph where we've been the last two weeks, Paul fleshes out in great detail the gospel. And last time we focused on the uh, heart of the gospel, which is justification by faith alone. We focused on the foundation of the gospel, the redeeming work of Christ, and uh, the integrity of the gospel, which is brought out by that word propitiation. But we have been especially focusing on, the last couple of weeks, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's central to Christianity. That is the very heart of of the gospel. Let me give you a definition of justification that I find very helpful. It comes from the Shorter Catechism, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer 33. Question, what is justification? Answer, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Notice that language, alone. Faith alone. Now, I was reminded in preparing for this sermon, and I prepare well in advance, and I was beginning to write up my notes last May 18th, and I was reminded on that day of how significant is this doctrine of justification by faith, not only in this life, but as we all face the reality of death. If you have this blessing when you come to die, uh, you have everything. But if you don't have it, you lose everything, including your own soul. Uh, this is really, really important, this whole matter of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, the day I began writing up my notes, the morning brought news of the death of a real estate 
investor, a billionaire, who had just died at the age of 81. And this I do know, that when a billionaire dies, he can't take his billions with him. When you cross the threshold of death, whatever you possess, whatever you owned in this life, you leave it behind. Your billions do not go with you. The Bible says it's appointed on a man once to die and then to face the judgment. And if you come before the judgment uh, seat of God without a saving interest in Christ, without the blessing of justification by faith alone. Not only do you lose everything that you once owned in life, you lose that which is most valuable of all. You lose your very soul. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world, said Jesus, and yet forfeit his soul? Well, on that very same day, I read about another billionaire who's still alive, but the story was that he had just lost $9 billion. And he lost it because he made a financial bet that went in the wrong direction. And so the Lord was impressing upon me the nature of earthly wealth so valued by the world and reminded me that it can not only take wings and fly away, the day can come when a sinner can lose everything, including something far more valuable than material wealth, he can lose his soul. But on the very same day, God in his providence directed me not only to the instability and temporal nature of earthly wealth, but reinforced for me on May 18th of this year of just how wealthy the believer is because he or she has this blessing of justification by faith alone. What happened on May 18th is I got a text from Mr. Anderson at 9.41 p.m. And in that text, he told me about two brothers who are wealthy not in material wealth, as the world would measure it, but wealthy because they have this blessing of justification by faith alone. One of them, they were both Presbyterian pastors, one of them had been translated from earth to heaven that very morning in an automobile accident involving a dump truck. That was Dr. Harry Reeder. Justification by faith alone, how wealthy that made him in life, and no doubt about it, when he crossed the threshold of death. But then Mr. Anderson's uh, text also gave me a link uh, to a note written by Dr. Tim Keller's uh, son. Uh, Dr. Keller, on the 18th of May, had been released from the hospital in New York. He had been in the last... Uh, uh, innings of his struggle with pancreatic cancer. They had sent him home to die under hospice care. And uh, his son wrote a note, and I read that note. And in that note, he talked about how uh, they had had wonderful times of family prayer together, uh, Tim Keller praying with his kids, praying with his wife, and how Tim Keller was talking repeatedly about how he was looking forward to seeing his Lord, and the next day he did. These two Presbyterian brothers had great wealth in life, not of a material kind, but wealth that is not lost in death. In fact, wealth that 
actually, in terms of our enjoyment of it, increases at death because life in the Father's house is superior to the experience of God's people yet living on the earth. No doubt about how rich one is when one possesses this blessing of justification by faith alone when death occurs. Now today we begin to look at the three implications of justification by faith alone. That's verses 27 through 31. Paul is returning in these verses to a literary form known as the diatribe. He's used this elsewhere in the letter. He used it in addressing the unbelieving Jews in chapter 2. It's a form of speech where there's a discussion between Paul and a representative of another viewpoint. And he dealt with the unbelieving Jew using this diatribe format in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, he used it again in dealing with Jewish objections to the gospel. And now he comes back to that diatribe form of, of communication once again. And it's likely that Paul is targeting more than the unbelieving Jews here. He appears to me to also have an eye to us in the church. Do you realize the implications of this doctrine of justification by faith alone in your own life? Are you in any way living contrary to that gospel that you profess to believe? So we're going to begin to, to look at uh, the implications for the Christian in terms of justification by faith alone. And there are three of them that John Stott, in his typical, uh, wonderful analytical mind, uh, puts it for us very plainly. He says three things here. The doctrine of justification humbles sinners and excludes boasting. That's our focus today in verses 27 and 28. Secondly, the doctrine of justification unites believers and excludes discrimination. That's for next time, verses 29 and 30. And then thirdly, the doctrine of justification upholds the law and excludes antinomianism. So what does this doctrine mean for the Christian? It means no boasting, no discrimination, no antinomianism. That's what it means. But there's so much here just to deal with the boasting. We're going to limit our focus today on verses 27 and 28. And as we look at this theme, no boasting, what does it mean that you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation is by grace alone? The first thing that it means, no boasting, Christian. You have no grounds for boasting. You have no grounds for a fleshly boast. Your only, um, your only suitable boast is in the divine achievement of God's grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's your only suitable boast. Now, as we look at uh, this theme, no boasting, we're going to consider first the death of Christ and the killing of boasting. That's verse 27. We're going to spend most of our time with that. And then briefly, the importance of sola fide, or faith alone, to killing boasting. Now, let's begin with the death of Christ and the killing of boasting. Would you look at verse 27? Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, these words are 
given in the context of the sacrificial death of Christ for guilty sinners. Last time we did look at verses 24 through 26, and I pointed out that word justification is the heart of the gospel. Redemption is the basis of the gospel. And finally, propitiation speaks of the integrity of the gospel. Propitiation explains how Christ's substitutionary penal atonement deals with the guilt of our sins and turns God's holy wrath away so that God can be both just and the justifier of those who believe. We must connect the gospel of the cross to this implication now of excluding all boasting in the flesh. The death of Christ ought to kill all of our fleshly boasts. I'm not saying we don't still have a struggle with fleshly boasts because we do. But what I'm saying that in your battle with this terrible remaining sin of pride, it is the gospel that will help you to mortify that sin afresh and afresh again and again. Because that's a many-headed sin, isn't it? You lop off one head and it pops up again and you gotta cut the head off again, right? It's a many-headed Hydra, if you will. And it's the gospel that we need to apply to ourselves at that moment where we have manifested that awful sin of pride. I am really indebted to Isaac Watts, and we're going to sing his hymn at the end of the service, um, the, when I survey the wondrous cross. He, he understands how important it is to apply the gospel in this fight against pride. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Now, Paul is teaching that the gospel addresses man's sinful pride in verse 27. He begins with a question that includes one of his frequently used words, namely boasting, it begins, then what becomes of our boasting? Short answer, it is excluded. Boasting that he has in mind here is of the sinful kind. He means a boasting in the flesh. Now, the law of God shows us that we have no room for boasting. Uh, it is a mirage if we think that we do. Uh, we looked at uh, what the law of God had to say to us earlier in this chapter. A man who boasts in being a good man is a man who is ignorant of his true guilt before God. And I would add he is willfully um, ignorant of his condition. And a man in Adam who is thinking of himself as a good man is, is doing this despite uh, God's law saying something to the contrary, but he's also manifesting that he has no real understanding about the meaning and, and the, the purpose of the cross, or else he would not be such a boaster. The law shows us that we have no grounds for boasting, and the gospel of the cross shows us that. Now, this word boasting is a favorite word of the Apostle Paul. In fact, of all the boasting words in the New Testament, 
they're almost all of them exclusively used by the Apostle Paul. And I think one of the reasons why he spoke about boasting so much in his epistle is he had been the preeminent boaster before his conversion. And he was of a totally different mind after his conversion about what an appropriate boast is compared to his life in Adam before his conversion. He talks about his sinful boast as an unconverted Pharisee in Philippians 3, 4 through 6, and he says there that he boasted in two things. He boasted in his Jewish pedigree, and he also boasted in his performance-based merit badges. These were the things that he gloried in until he met Christ on the Damascus Road. And as a Pharisee, he would have thanked God every day, as the Pharisees were known to do, that they were Jews and not Gentiles. And because the Pharisees were very chauvinistic, Paul would have also prayed every day when he was Rabbi Saul, thanking God that he was a man and not a woman. He, he gloried in flesh, and specifically he gloried in male flesh. And he gloried in what he thought was human achievement, not God's grace. And, and what a with what different eyes he saw everything after his conversion experience, and what a horror when he saw the true nature of his sin. Yes, he may not have frequented the red light district like a pagan Gentile. Yes, he may not have used dishonest weights and measures like some other merchants did, but his pride, the greatest of all sins, was his in spades. He's serious when he says, I was the chief of sinners. And if you're chief in pride, you are the chief of sinners. It was his in spades, and he knew it. And after his conversion, he saw everything differently on account of his saving experience of the gospel. And he brings that out in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, and, and he brings it out in Galatians 6, 14, what is a distinctly Christian boast. Indeed, it distinguishes the Christian from what he or she once was in Adam and distinguishes the Christian from the world that is yet in Adam and in sin. And that Christian boast is to glory in the divine achievement of the cross, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Christ my Lord, by which I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. God forbid that I should boast in anything but the divine achievement of the cross. There and there alone is the suitable boast. And he says, that's, just not, that's not just true for me. That's true for all of God's people. A couple of verses later, he says, this is the canon, this is the rule for the Israel of God, for the true church, for spiritual Israel, whether they be Jewish or whether they be Gentile. The mark of God's true covenant people is that they do not glory any longer in the flesh, but they glory in the divine achievement of the cross. These are the covenant people of God. Now, boasting in the flesh is something that characterizes fallen humanity. And boasting is connected to the sin of pride, and pride's not exactly in short supply among mankind. Paul had used the boasting language to describe the religious Jews in Romans 2, specifically in verse 17 and verse 23. They had 
They had boasted in their Jewish name, in their Jewish identity, even though they hadn't lived up to the significance of that name. They, they, they gloried in it. They gloried in their Jewish identity. They boasted in that as if that gave them a leg up on the Gentile. They also boasted in possessing the Mosaic law, unlike the Gentiles. But Paul pointed out, but you don't keep the law, and that means that you're in the same soup as those unregenerate uh, Gentiles. Indeed, you're in a deeper part of the soup because you've squandered all of that privilege. Pride, it marked out the Jewish community. But then it marked out the Gentile world of that day. That, that world wasn't in short supply of pride. Think about Paul's church planning efforts in Corinth as he evangelized Corinth. The proud Greeks, they gloried in their rhetoric and their academic standing and in their cultural achievements. Paul specifically determined when he came to Corinth that he would not adopt their rhetorical forms of speech. The Greeks, they love form, they love words. And if you really wanted to pander the flesh, you spoke in a rhetorical style of speech that they would have admired. And Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And when I preached him to you, I did not use that rhetorical form of speech that, that glories the glorifies the flesh. I didn't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I didn't want to stand between your souls and Christ. And so I preached the gospel directly to your consciences in a very simple manner so that the Holy Spirit would work in your midst as he did. The Spirit would not have blessed our rhetorical form of communication, nor does the Spirit bless any message other than the gospel to human souls, that very gospel that proud Greeks said was moronic, it was foolishness. But it's not foolishness, it is the wisdom and it is the power of God unto everyone who believes. And in saving sinners, God saves us in a way that addresses our cardinal sin, and that's pride. That is the cardinal sin of the human race. That is the cardinal sin that the Christian still has to make battle against. We still, we don't have sin as a reigning power anymore, but we have it as a remaining presence, don't we? And God saved us in a way that takes on that cardinal sin of pride. Even after Paul was so mightily used by God to plant a true church in this city of Corinth, he had to apply the gospel again and again to this church. The pride that remains even in Christian hearts is such that it needs continual mortification and nothing can mortify pride in our hearts but a fresh application of the gospel. And you find much of that, that if you read through First and Second Corinthians. Pride is competitive. A pride um, oftentimes manifests itself in a uh, superiority complex, but you know, pride's a slippery customer. Pride can also manifest itself in an inferiority complex, but that's a subject for another time. Uh, pride uh, does, on many occasions, manifest itself in a superiority complex. Think about that publican and the Pharisee who came to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee thought he was praying, but he wasn't. He was 
giving an honorary speech to himself. And you remember how he was in his competitive pride comparing himself to other men. He said, I, I am not an extortioner, I'm not an adulterer, and when it comes to the positive things, I fast. I mean, boy, do I fast. I fast until it hurts. And I am generous with my money. I, I, I tithe everything. I even tithe my garden spices. I, you know, I would tithe my dog if I could. You know, I mean, that was his mindset. Uh, I do this, and I do this, and I'm better than other men, and certainly better than yonder publican over there. Oh, pride is so competitive. But the law shows us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there is none of us who has even remotely come close to keeping the law. Indeed, the demands of the law are so far-reaching that a man is guilty of breaking the law of God even when it appears that he has kept it. Have you ever wondered why the Bible says that the plowing of the wicked is sin? I mean, how can a farmer get in trouble by doing what he's supposed to do and go out in his field and plow that field? On one level, externally speaking, that's a good thing. We wouldn't want him to be lazy. It would be more of a sin for him not to go out in the field and plow. So how can... Plowing be sin for an unconverted farmer because he never does anything for the glory of God. That's why. The law is that far-reaching. And when you begin to, to understand that and, and how far-reaching the law is, then really there's not the great difference among men as men imagine to be. I mean, if I could use an illustration for a moment... Um, to describe the different kinds of men, morally speaking, that exist on earth. We all agree that, that, that not, not all men are the same and that men differ from one another and some are, you know, are your so-called good natural men and then there are your so-called bad natural men. And if we think of your so-called good natural men, let's think about it in terms of elevation on earth. And let's just say that all the, the good people, so to speak, uh, on planet Earth that are still in Adam, uh, that uh, these good people in this illustration live in the high places of the Earth. They live up in the mountains. They live up a couple miles up in the Alps or in the Himalayas or in the Rockies. And, and the really bad people on Earth, you know, the Hamas types and so forth, let's just put them in the lowest spot on Earth in this illustration, down by the Dead Sea a quarter of a mile below sea level. And then other people are somewhere in between on the elevation scale in this illustration. You know, the, the difficulty that we have among human beings is that we tend to just look down and look at our fellow man and we don't look up. Now in this illustration, look up to the stars. How many light years away are all of those people? really just about the same, aren't they? And the stars in this illustration represent those whose righteousness allows them to reach God. They are all of them light years removed. And those who imagine themselves to be living in the Alps have more of the cardinal sin of pride about them than they imagine. You know, it's unthinkable that God would save sinners from sin and not address the sin of pride. Pride is the cardinal sin, 
Pride is the first sin that ever expressed itself in the human race. When our mother Eve fell into sin, her first sin was pride. She desired to be as God. And by the way, that was the first sin of Lucifer who became Satan. You can read about that in Isaiah 14, 13, and 14. Pride is the fountainhead of all evil in the world. There's obviously no gospel to save Satan from his pride, but there is for sinful human beings. And this gospel of necessity must be carried out in a way that addresses our cardinal sin, namely pride. We need to be saved in a way that a stake is driven through the sin of pride, and that's what God has done. James Boyce offers this insight about the gospel of God's grace and salvation from sin. He writes, if pride is the greatest of all sins and God's plan of salvation does not destroy pride, rooting it up, casting it out, and even dusting off the place where it stood, then it is not a good plan. It has failed, and we need a faith other than Christianity. But the point of our text is that the gospel has not failed, and Boyce obviously points that out in his sermon as he goes on. God in the gospel of his son has not failed, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Boasting is excluded by the gospel. The gospel is not a sanctuary city for boasters and boasting. Boasting is an outlaw that is excluded by the Holy Gospel. By what kind of law or what kind of principle is it excluded? If I can personify that rule, if I can personify that law as representing a sheriff, by what kind of sheriff is boasting excluded? Is it by the sheriff called works? No, because the sheriff called works coddles pride and would pervert the gospel into a false gospel that gives boasters a sanctuary city. It's the sheriff named Faith that drives vile boasting away. It's on the principle of faith that boasting is excluded. Justification deals with how a sinner is put into a right relationship with God. It is not by works. It is not by faith plus works. It is by faith alone. And that leads me briefly to the second point. When you think about the mortification of the pride that remains, not only fresh applications of what the gospel is really about, but the principle of faith alone is a principle that not only comforts the Christian, but helps the Christian to fight the battle against remaining sin. Look at verse 28. And let me read verse 27 so that you can see the flow to 28. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works, the works of the law. Boasting is excluded by a truth dear to the heart of the reformers, sola fide, or faith alone. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. When Martin Luther translated verse 28, he added the word alone to make clear what is in this text. This is what Luther said. For we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. I can tell you that when Luther did that, it created quite a stir among Roman Catholic scholastics. And they were upset with Luther because Luther had added a word not found in the Greek text, that he had added the word alone. But Luther, by adding that word, was not adding a new thought to the text. He was making clear what the text is teaching. The text is clearly supporting what Luther is saying here. The sentence is denying any place to works, and that by necessity leaves us with only faith or faith alone. And that is the continental divide between Roman Catholicism and evangelical Christianity. The great debate between Rome and the Protestant reformers revolves around one word, alone. Is it faith alone or is it not? The Roman Catholic Church said that if you're going to be justified, of course there must be faith. But they were unwilling to say that it's faith alone, that you must make some contribution to your salvation. You must make some satisfaction for your own sins. Christ did a lot for you. Maybe he did 99% of it for you, but you've got to come up with the other 1%. They refused to say alone. By the way, that's the same problem that the Judaizers have that Paul deals with in the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were those that were preaching a false gospel. And one thing that they would not say is that it's faith alone, in Christ alone, for salvation is by grace alone. They would say that, of course, you have to have faith in Christ. And, of course, we can only be saved by the grace of God. But it's not faith alone. You've got to add something to your faith. You've got to add, in their case, they said you've got to add circumcision. Or anytime you have a plus after faith, You've introduced a false gospel. Paul brings that out very clearly in Galatians. More importantly, the Holy Spirit brings it out. And the problem is, well, there's a lot of problems with that, but one of the problems is that this false gospel does not exclude boasting. Nor can it impart any assurance of forgiveness to the convicted soul. If we have to contribute our own two cents to our salvation, there could never be any assurance, let alone salvation. If we have to make satisfaction for our sin, there's no hope for you, there's no hope for me. Thank God for this principle of faith alone. Thank God that he is able in the gospel to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. He's able to do that. The ungodly can be justified, who make no contribution at all to their salvation. Thank God for the truth that Jesus taught in Luke 18 of those two men that went to the temple to pray. Only one of them really prayed, the publican. And you remember, he made absolutely no contribution at all to his salvation. He just prayed for God's mercy. He looked in faith to God's provision of grace, to the propitiatory sacrifice. He literally prayed, God be mercy seated to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. 
He didn't contribute to his own salvation. Christ did it all. That's what we're going to celebrate next Lord's Day when we come to the Lord's table. And we're going to notice again that everything on that table represents Christ and what he has done. We don't bring anything to the table. The only thing that we bring to the table is the sin that necessitates the salvation. That's the gospel. It excludes boasting, but it also opens the door of hope to any sinner. And so that faith alone principle is vital to excluding boasting. But it's also vital as we think of life within evangelicalism. It's not just a a historic debate between Roman Catholicism and uh, evangelical Christianity that concerns us. Uh, When we think about this principle of faith alone, it gets rather subtle in, in the evangelical church, and we need to think this thing through within evangelicalism and understand that when we talk about faith alone, we are talking about faith in the sense of instrumentality. We're not talking about faith as if it were a work that gives you a boast before God. We have to be careful here. Uh, The devil is pretty crafty. And so let's think about this principle of faith alone more clearly as evangelicals. It is through the instrumentality of faith that we are united to Christ. Christ is the meritorious ground of salvation, not our faith. Let me put it this way. The name of the Savior is not faith. The name of the Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Faith is but the instrument that lays hold of Christ. It's the empty hand that is held out to receive heavenly alms. Some have described faith this way. It is the look that looks to Christ. That's all it is. No one has a boast uh, who has looked to Christ or has held out an empty hand to receive heavenly alms. The instrumentality of faith. Faith is not a work. And if you begin to think of faith as a work, well, then you would think of it as a boast. And You know, as you think about people who have yet to believe the gospel, people around you, people that you know, people that maybe you've talked to and and witnessed to, and yet they just are still blind, and Satan still has them um, where he wants them. And maybe the devil tempts you to think uh, congratulatory thoughts. At least I had the good sense to believe. Really? Really? Is that what the New Testament teaches? You had the good sense to believe? Paul said to the Corinthians, who had a great problem with remaining pride, who caused you to differ? Wasn't you. If you have faith, it is because God in his sovereign grace wrought it in your heart. Your heart was as hard as stone and as imperious impervious to the things of God as the devil himself until God changed your heart. And when you think about that faith, don't forget, it's more than a duty enjoined upon all men. It is a gift of God's sovereign grace in the hearts and lives of his people. The Bible simply will not allow you to think of faith as a work. For it is by grace 
we have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Sola fide, it not only comforts and assures, it forbids boasting. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel and for the way that you have saved your people, a way that um, addresses our cardinal sin of pride. And we thank you that it is the gospel that helps us in the fight against remaining sin. And so we pray that even as we come to the Lord's table next week, that we know that you have many different purposes for the Lord's Supper but surely one of them is to help us to fight the battle against remaining sin and against that remaining sin of pride. And so we pray that as we come to the table next week that you would use it in that powerful way in our Christian experience. And Lord, we do thank you that salvation is all of grace. We couldn't be saved if it weren't. And so we thank you for the grace of God. It not only humbles us, it encourages us, it gives us it gives us a great deal of comfort to know that it is by grace that we've been saved. And so accept our thanks as we offer it today through the name of Jesus. Amen.